0: It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. It's not a Bible verse. It's advice my mother used to give me all the time. She would offer me this instruction for life. Now that may sound unusual for you, for a mother, to give her son that instruction, but such was the life I lived. I heard it from elementary school to high school. Here's another one she used to tell me. It is better to remain quiet And have people think you are a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) I had a fun and encouraging mother. (laughs) My dad would give me instruction for life as well. However, he always gave me how-to instruction. He told me how to treat day laborers. He said, pay a man that works with his hands more money than a company. That man doesn't have health insurance and it's tough for self-employed people to make it. Every time I see a, a carpenter or, or a, um, someone working in the trades, I still think of that instruction for life that my dad, Chuck, gave me. He gave me instruction on how to deal with finances. Don't ever go into debt. Don't ever get a credit card. It will be unhealthy for you. Now, you may disagree with some of his instruction for life. That's fine. Because his instruction isn't inspired. His instruction isn't God-breathed. It's Chuck-breathed. My wife's father, John, used to bend down, look her in the eye and say, have fun today. This was his instruction for life. Enjoy today. Smile. Laugh. Have a good day. Love life. This was one of the things I noticed about my wife when we met in college. She enjoyed life. She had fun every day. As my wife became older, her father would look at her and say, break a rule today. (laughs) He told her, break a rule. My mom told me it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. It's really a miracle Sarah and I aren't in prison today. (laughs) Looking back, we received some crazy instruction for life. Uh, Sarah and I were laughing the other night on our front porch just reliving all the crazy stuff our parents told us. And as I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm realizing some of the advice that I give my sons is not good. If, if we're putting together a chair or a vacuum or something that requires assembly, one of them will hand me the instructions and I will say, Son, men don't need instructions. <laughs> now granted, that may be true of a vacuum, but that is not true of life. You need instructions for life. You're not to aimlessly wander through your home life, your church life, and and your job without knowing how to live. We have in our text instructions for life. These aren't Chuck-breathed instructions or Peggy Sue-breathed instructions. That's my mom's name, uh, Peggy Sue. My mom, she's a pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you'd know why I feel blue. It's a song, (laughs) I figured since we're getting older as a congregation, some of you would know that ancient hymn. Uh, I've always hated, I've always hated following instructions since childhood. My wife says it's the sin nature. I tend to think it's just natural leadership abilities. (laughs) Uh, when uh, When I was in elementary school, the principal would bring the entire school together, elementary, middle, and high, and give us math worksheets. It was filled with addition, 19 plus 8. It was filled with subtraction, 23 minus 5. Multiplication, 3 times 4. There were 100 problems, and it was a race to see who could complete the worksheet first. The first round, I was I was flying through it. Math was my favorite subject, and I thought I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna win this competition. I answered my last question and I stood up like the victor that I was, hands raised and a condescending stare on my face at all the slow people around me. The principal was like, Kyle, second place. I looked over and a a redheaded girl in the 10th grade beat me. And I thought, this can't be. It's a conspiracy. Some of you love conspiracy theories. You know what I'm talking about, Anyway, this principal gave us another shot. He handed out a new sheet of paper to everyone and we had to keep it turned over on our desk until he said go. And he told us to read the instructions first and then answer all the questions. He said go. I turned it over. There are two full paragraphs of instructions. <laughs> Ridiculous. I glanced over at the red-headed 10th grader and she was reading the instructions. What a loser. This round is mine to win. I had completed 10 problems when she stood up again. The principal said, Sally wins. And Sally wasn't her real name. I think, I think Jezebel was her name. <laughs> I, I, I'm really convinced now this thing is rigged. And I protested because I'm a reformer. And the principal said, Kyle, did you read the instructions on the worksheet? I began explaining to him my biblical conviction against instructions. And he interrupted me. The nerve of this guy. And he said, if you had read the instructions like I asked you to, you would have read this. Once you read this sentence, you do not have to answer any of the questions. Just stand up and claim your victory. And he said, Kyle, what do you have to say? I said, Principal McDowell, I just want to say, that's dirty. Why why are you going to do me like that? Kyle... Instructions aren't just for ladies with red hair. It's also for boys with black hair. Interesting little fact, that principal quit our school and never stepped back into education again. I saw a picture in the paper talking about his change of vocation. I always wondered if I contributed to that or not. No. We find in today's text, God breathes instruction for life. You don't need to answer any problem. Until you've completely read the instructions. And by the way, you, you don't have to worry about this instruction coming from Chuck. You don't have to worry about it coming from a human. It came through a human, but it came from God. It's God-breathed instruction. He wrote it, and it's applicable for all times, through all ages, and for all people. Just as my earthly father gave me how-to advice, our heavenly father gives us how-to advice. And here's how the text is broken down. Instructions for life. Church, this is how to live among the redeemed. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Church, this is how to live among the pagans. Chapter 3 verses 9 through 12. Notice in verse 8. Finally, all of you. This phrase constitutes a summary of the household codes we were just given. He gave commands, you may remember, to citizens, to employees, to wives, to husbands. Now Peter says, finally, all of you. Not, not just citizens, but also the governmental leaders. Not just employees, but also the employers. Not just wives and husbands, but also all of you children. All of you single adult, all of you divorced, all of you widowed. This is for, as we used to say in North Carolina, this is for everybody. This is for redheads, the brown heads, even all the baldheads. This is for Peggy Sue, Chuck, John, and Kyle. This is for everyone in the church. This isn't instruction merely for one of my children, but for all of my children. And I'm imagining some adult in the local church in Bithynia had began to slouch down during the last few public readings. It applied to citizens, and that's not really him. He governs citizens. It applied to employees. That's not really him. He has employees. It applied to marriage. That's not really him. He's single. But now he hears an elder of his local church read this. Finally, all of you. And I imagine he, along with many others, began to sit up in their pews. This no doubt had the same effect as this letter was read to churches in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and throughout Asia. Now what follows in the Greek is five adjectives without any verb. A to be verb is probably implied. Notice verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You could read this verse like this. All of you in the church, this goes for everybody, no exceptions, you are to be unified. You are to be sympathetic. Now, five instructions on how to live among the redeemed. First, maintain unity. Notice verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. This does not mean that everyone in the church has the same playlist on the iPod. This does not mean that everyone must have the same taste in food or hobbies. Unity does not mean uniformity. We're not all dressing alike and going to the same places. We're not all cheering for the same sports teams. When Jesus created the church, he didn't expect all of us to run around looking like clones. There is beauty in the diversity that makes up God's local churches. The goal is not uniformity of preferences, but a uniformity of mind. And and whatever unity is, it's imperative for the health of the church. Whatever it is, Jesus prayed that we would have it. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed that we would be one. Unity is this, literally, same think. Same think. It's bowing your mind to the authority of the word of God. It's a church thinking the same way in the gospel. We possess the same gospel grid in which we view life. We process everything through this gospel grid. Peter tells these churches, do not lose your unity. How many of you have ever experienced a church that lost its unity? Do you raise your hand? Yeah. Let's, let's just try this. How many of you have ever been in a church that's lost its unity? Do you raise your hand? It's quite a few. Peter tells these churches, don't lose your unity. Stephen Davies says that the unity of the body of Christ is as important as the unity in the human body. Whenever there is disunity in our physical bodies or when something isn't working properly, we call that a disability. When one group of unhealthy cells begins devouring another group of healthy cells, we call that cancer. Peter doesn't want these churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire to have the cancer of disunity. One, one pastor did a little research and found that the formula for potential relationships within a family of four is actually six. Six. See, dad can have a relationship with his son and his daughter. That's two different relationships. Mom can have a relationship with her son and daughter. That's two more relationships, four total. Then the mother and father can have a relationship. That's another. That's five. And then the son and daughter can have a relationship. Hopefully it doesn't end in bloodshed, but that's six. Six possible relationships in a family of four. In my family, we have four children. So we are a family of six. We have the possibility of 15 different relationships. And that's why long trips in the van are so much fun. (laughs) Listen, the more people, the more you have to continually repair disunity. Now, what does that mean for us? A church of our size, which is not a huge church. We still have, I did the math, 347,000. Possible relationships. You think we have the potential for disunity? Fighting for unity in the body is a lifelong enterprise. Just think about the readers, the original readers, reading this, hearing this. They came from different cultures. Some were Jews and some were Gentiles. Some worked for Rome and others viewed Rome as the enemy of God. They had different perspectives on a myriad of issues and it could possibly create tension Peter is telling them, you can have unity of mind without agreeing on everything. Don't burn your relationships to the ground on an issue that doesn't really matter. This is important to know. We are never asked by God to manufacture unity in the church. It's already here. We are one in Christ, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. We do have an obligation to maintain that unity. And gospel unity is a powerful apologetic to the watching world. The gospel should give us such a tight unity that it makes schisms unthinkable. How are we to live among the redeemed? First, maintain unity. Second, express sympathy. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy. Sympathy is the ability to feel when another feels joy or sorrow. We dare not grow hard towards one another in the church. When others in the body are joyful about a new job or a new child or a new move, do you feel that joy with them? When someone goes through trials, the loss of a family member, the loss of a job or infertility, Or missing that promotion or some devastation. Do you feel that sorrow? Do you share in that sorrow? Do you feel for others? Do you possess a readiness to enter in and share? You can't be sympathetic with others if you're preoccupied with yourself. You might even want to ask some people close to you. How? How can I grow in sympathy? What is sympathy, expressing sympathy? What might that look like in our church? Daniel Webster exclaimed, when a man preaches to me, I want him to make it a personal matter, a personal matter, a personal matter. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to give you vague generalities. I'm going to give you tangible ways. This might look like praying with someone in the halls when you know they're going through a hard time. This might look like being a shoulder to cry on or giving an ear to listen. This might look like kindness expressed to a recently retired person who is sensing a loss of purpose. This might look like extending hospitality to those newly empty nesters who are learning to do life when their kids aren't around. This is how we live among the redeemed. We maintain unity. We express sympathy. And thirdly, we show brotherly love. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Brotherly love. This is family vocabulary. It's it's a Greek word that describes the love that a physical family experiences with each other. Church, love one another like family because you are the truest definition of family on earth. The family is the chief metaphor of the church in the scriptures. And a lot of people don't view the church as a family. And I think that's unfortunate that's unhelpful, that's unhelpful, two different things, unhelpful and then unhelpful. It's also unbiblical. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12? We just read this recently in our family devotions. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. That's his biological mother and his half-brothers. Asking to speak with him. But Jesus replied to the man who told him. This is the middle man who was relaying the message. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples. Jesus said here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus taught that spiritual family is tighter than physical family. Kyle how how can we grow? and our understanding of brotherly love. Well, here, here's uh, two helpful reads for you. Uh, Life Together by Diedrich Bonhoeffer and then Bold Love by Trumper Longman, and Dan Allender, both uh, excellent reads. Churches can do brotherly love well, <laughs> they, they can. In fact, the Church of Thessalonica was so good at this that Paul said, I don't have to write to you regarding this matter of brotherly love, why? because they were excelling at it. You need a radical understanding of family that transcends biology. What is the name of our local church? Faith Family Church. We're not a family by biology, but a family by faith. Faith is stronger and deeper and more long-lasting than DNA. This is how we live among the redeemed. We maintain unity. We express sympathy. We show brotherly love. We possess a tender heart. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. Now, have you you ever noticed that some words just sound disgusting? I mean, and it's not just me. You've seen this in the English language. Moist. (laughs) Typically used to describe something delicious like a cake or some dessert, but doesn't it sound nasty? Moist. It's the, it's the diphthong, oi, which is wet sounding. Squirt is another one. It just sounds gross. It creates a negative feeling when you hear it. Squirt. Smear and slurp are other gross sounding words. Look, I could go on all day. I have big problems with the English language and, and the words they choose to define. But I want you to know that the Greek has those same types of words. The Greek root word behind tender heart is one of them. The word is splach That sounds terrible. It? Splach nigh. It's a word that sounds opposite of its meaning. Don't come up to me and, and ask if you can splach me. The, the answer is no. The answer is always no. But the word actually speaks of compassion. It's a deep word. It's a tearful word. Feeling for others, that's sympathy. Feeling for others, feeling with others, That's splachni, that's tender heart. You're entering into the feelings of others, the pain of others. And what would it look like if this church was filled with splachni? It might look like walking through that messy marriage situation and entering into the hurt of it. It might look like getting under that stress, that grief, that fatigue and helping someone bear it up. Splocknye is crying with a wife who discovered her husband's pornography addiction. Splocknye is weeping with the parents whose prodigal child is breaking their heart and stomping on it. Splock is being there when someone is losing their hearing and losing their weak recall and comforting them. You will have new ears in the new Earth and perfect recall when Jesus gives you a resurrected body. A church that has splach scattered all over the walls will have a lot of social misfits. It will not be a church only filled with master's degrees. Why do churches have a high percentage of social misfits? Because tender hearts. Don't grow hard hearted. Keep a tender heart. See hurt and mend that hurt with promises of the gospel. And that means you leaders, you type Aers, you can't always be thinking about how to go forward, how to expand, how to build your business. You have to acknowledge the broken person laying on the ground. This is how we live among the redeemed. We maintain unity, we express sympathy, we show brotherly love, we possess a tender heart. We demonstrate humility. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What does a church filled with humble minds look like? It's people who suppress their desire to be important and put others ahead of themselves. People who voluntarily step down a notch or two. They aren't trying to assert themselves. Mark Dever says the church should be a display case of humility. Now, let's take a zoomed out view of of all of this. Maintain unity with the person who is caught up in some cultural hot button issue. Give the gospel time to do its work. Express sympathy to the individual who made a dumb financial decision and help him crawl out of that hole. Show brotherly love to the church member who is a very unique individual. Possess a tender heart for the parent with a child who has behavioral issues. You say, All I can see is a child that needs to be spanked. (laughs) See a parent who needs and longs for help demonstrate humility humility i want to speak to you pointedly especially those of you that are that are new with us <laughs> when you're with the people of god you don't have to brag you don't have to list your accomplishments you don't have to tell us what car you drive or how good you were in high school at sports We don't believe you anyway. You are accepted in here not by your efforts, but by the efforts of another. How successful you are doesn't make you accepted in the body. Jesus Christ's work on the cross makes you accepted here. Now we we took a, a zoomed out view of all of this. Now why would Peter command any of this? Why would he command any of this? Sounds a bit legalistic. He commanded it because you need, you you don't need to just believe truth, you need to live truth. I'm giving you a lot of practical application today. Uh, Ramesh Richard, that Indian expositor, likes to give a crude but helpful truism. He says, biblical exposition without application leads to spiritual constipation. The information given in a sermon must transform your life or it fails no matter how academically correct. Peter is showing you how all the deep theology that he's given you so far in the book of 1 Peter works out into the massive transformation of attitudes. Peter finds it necessary to hammer away at the outworking of the gospel in every domain of life. There are 2,000 years separating these churches... In our church, but these things remain the same across the centuries. We took a zoomed out view. We answered, Why would Peter command any of this? Now, you need the Holy Spirit's power to accomplish all of this. These five things are not terribly difficult to understand, just difficult to implement. We need the Holy Spirit's power. And I want you to see your utter inability to do these five things. How can one who hates love? How can one that is hard-hearted now become tender? How can the prideful be humble only by the enablement of God? I am not giving you a human-centered plea to accomplish more in the power of the flesh. I like what Brian Chappell says. He uses a different command than the five that we are given here, but the truth remains the same. He says, and I quote, When a preacher tells men in his congregation to stop lusting over the woman in their office, the men may come away thinking they can manufacture this resistance on their own. The power to do what God requires resides in God. End quote. Now, those of you that are non-Christians, Uh, None of these things are for you. Not A, B, C, D, E. None of these things are for you. Me telling you non-Christian to do these things is like me telling a drowning person, swim, swim. The advice is correct but not helpful. You can't command something they don't have the ability to do. You need the power of God through salvation to do this. I um, I read different scholars and theologians and pastors on every text I preach, and I, I heard toward the end of my week of prep, I heard John Piper preach this text, and he said, "I'm not sure why these five things are in the order they're in." He flippantly said it and then moved on. So I got to thinking about it, and after a little study, I say, "Oh, Johnny boy, I think I know. It's a chiasm." Peter deliberately structured it as a chiasm. Now, what you are seeing is called a chiastic structure. This is a literary technique that shows where the list begins and where the list ends. But more importantly, it shows you where to place the emphasis. It gives you the apex of the list. It begins and ends with the mind, unity of mind and a humble mind. In the middle, you have have sympathy and tender heart. That's feeling for someone and feeling with someone, respectively. And then in the center, you have brotherly love. Notice it forms a greater than symbol pointing you to the guts of Peter's list. The most important statement is in the middle. Here's another way to look at it. Each phrase is a a stair that you climb to reach the pinnacle, the main point, the climax This is how you live among the redeemed. What's the main point? You treat them like family. In fact, you view them as your family. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, for your growth in Christ, you need to be a part of a biological family. But it does say, for your growth in Christ, you need to be a part of a spiritual family. How to live among the redeemed And secondly, church, this is how to live among the pagans. If you're a non-Christian, you're going to get to hear some insider language today. This is how we are to behave in front of you. God gives us instruction on how to conduct ourselves among you. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing Peter tells them and here's kind of how it's laid out Peter tells them do not do this 9a do do this 9b and here's why you should do this 9c through 12 don't do this do do this and here's why you should do this So he's saying, don't do this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Peter is telling these churches, the redeemed, that they will be reviled by the pagans, those outside the church. The community outside of the church will likely be hostile to you. They will revile you for holding biblical convictions, hurl insults at you, challenge your honor, publicly shame you, attempt to discredit you, Constantly prank you. The pagans may be in your biological family. The pagans may be at your job. The pagans may be in the school cafeteria. Peter says, I know you're hardwired to retaliate, to to take vengeance, but don't do it. Resist. Well, they commented on my social media, so I'm going to comment on theirs. Peter says, absorb the insult." He's calling for non-retaliation. Now, if God's instruction to us through Peter was simply do not retaliate, do not attack back, that would be hard enough. But then he tells us something to do. He says, bless back. Not only do not attack back, but bless back. And all the scholars I read this week pointed out that the Greek word behind bless is eulogy. It's not like the funeral eulogy. Uh, like you speak badly of me, I kill you, and then i say nice things about you in your funeral. That's not it. No, this is just simply eulogy, speaking well of someone. Bless means to praise or compliment. Isn't it hard to speak kindly of someone who is speaking harshly of you? Their speech is marked by battery. Yours needs to be marked by Blessing. And this is not just Peter. This came from the mouth of Jesus as well. Luke 6, 27. But I say unto you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Listen to this. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Well, Kyle, I'm a a counterpuncher by nature. Well, you don't understand. There's a lot of emotion in this. Well, all of that sounds like to me, no, God, I will revile back. I will repay evil for evil. How do you know if you've forgiven someone? You can bless them. By the way, Jesus practiced this, practiced what he preached, speaking blessings from the cross. Salvation exists because Jesus chose not to revile when he was reviled. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That is, uh, do not do this. Then, But on the contrary, bless, do this. And then notice this. For to this you were called. This is not a surprise. This is not some late addition that Jesus dropped on his followers. He told them all to expect to be hated among the pagans. Church, why are you surprised when the world attacks you? Why do you receive it as such a devastating blow to your identity? This doesn't change who you are. This is who you are. The New Testament calls us repeatedly to face opposition from the pagans. And then 9c, what does he say? Why why should you do all of this? That you may obtain a blessing. This is reward language. Peter joins our command to bless with our calling to receive God's blessing. Your choice in how to respond to insults in every situation is your choice in whether to be blessed by God or not. And now this is important. Notice verses 10, 11, and 12 are essentially a long quotation from Psalm 34. Alistair Begg thinks Psalm 34 was used as a catechism in the early church, uh, like a discipleship manual. It's very possible that Psalm 34 was sung as a hymn in the early church. And that these churches receiving this letter uh, would frequently sing this psalm. Now, why is that important? Because Peter quotes it here, and everyone sitting in the pew knew it. The redheads, the brownheads, and the baldheads, they all said, oh... Peter's quoting Psalm 34 now. The historical context of Psalm 34 is when David was on the run like a fugitive from Saul. Saul was acting like a pagan. And David was acting like the redeemed. Helm points out that twice during those fugitive years, David had the opportunity to take Saul's life. On one occasion, David cut off the corner of Saul's robe when Saul unknowingly went into the cave where David was hiding. And then after Saul arose and left, David called to him from the opening of the cave and Saul replied, Is this your voice, my son David? You are more righteous than I for you have repaid me good whereas I repaid you evil. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Peter tells them, do not do this, 9A. Do do this, 9B. And here's why you should do this, 9C. You will be blessed for it. And then he says, look at, look at verses 10 through 12. Look how I bless David for it. Verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now this sounds a lot like the instruction that my wife's father gave her. Enjoy life. And have good days. David is running for his life, but takes the time to bend down, look you in your eyes, and say, have fun today. Have a good day. And then you're like, great. Well, how how do we have good days? Well, keep reading. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him kill Saul when he has the chance. Revile Saul after Saul reviles him. No. Whosoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. If you're always trying to make sure that no one gets the best of you, no one ever takes advantage of you, you always win. You will not have good days. And the context of the original psalm Good days come when you know God is for you and is watching over you. The secret to having good days is having a good theology of God. Verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. While you're living among the pagans, church, and there's coming a day you will not always live among them, but until that day, turn away from evil. The verb, turn away, carries the idea of swerving to avoid a collision. It's showing active and persistent effort. So Peter is asking you to take every kind of evasive action in order not to sin in your response to the pagans. He didn't say, hey, break a rule today. He said, swerve, evade, get out of the way. Do anything possible not to break this rule. This is the good life. Church, this is the good life. Not trying to get revenge. Not trying to attack back everyone who attacks you. Leaving it in the hand of a sovereign God. God is using your revilings to develop your Christ-centered character. Verse 11, let him seek peace and pursue it. This reminds me of Jesus' statement, blessed are the peacemakers. My people seek peace among the pagans. Verse 12, for the eyes, oh, this is great. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's the best instruction for life. View God the correct way. View God the correct way. Ultimately, the greatness of God will sustain you while living among the pagans. You are to view God viewing you. The text says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So, so why is God looking toward the righteous? To bend an ear to hear the cry of his children. He keeps an eye on them. They never leave his sight And friends, this this is protein to build your spiritual muscle. This is a promise to claim. You've heard it said, it must be nice having Washington on your side. It must be nice having the sovereign on your side. The end of the verse. Why is God against those who do evil? This is vindication, not vindictiveness. Judgment day is coming And that's why you must not put your hope, church, in earthly judgments. Non-Christian, this is why, the end of this verse is why you must repent of your sins and trust Christ as your savior. God specializes in turning pagans into the redeemed. Now, let's land this plane and and try not to crash. You know, I, I haven't followed my parents' instructions for life. That's probably really good in some ways, (laughs) but then really bad in some others. The instructions were there, and I failed to follow them. Today, we spoke about instructions for life. How to live among the redeemed, and how to live among the pagans. In one thing, I am confident you will fail to do this perfectly. In moments of frustration, you will fail to maintain unity, fail to express sympathy, fail to show brotherly love, fail to possess a tender heart, fail to demonstrate humility. Someone at work will revile you and you will in that moment revile back and you will fail to follow the instructions perfectly. What hope is there for those of us who fail to follow God's instructions for life? Well, there is one who not only wrote the instructions but read and obeyed all of them perfectly. He is the redeemer. He took the place of you instruction ignorers and he died as one who obeyed all the instructions perfectly to redeem those who didn't. And Jesus did this in our place. Bless his holy name. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.